Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The word of the Lord. Amen. Welcome. I'm Mark, if you're new, and we are focusing on the Psalms. As you know, if you've been here, we've been doing this now for a little over a month, and we're looking at the Psalms as a sort of window into the life and heart of the Lord Jesus. The Psalms were the song book, the prayer book of Jesus, as he lived his life here on the earth, he used these prayers, these songs, for his communion with his Father. And so, as we who are Christians seek to participate in the heart and mind and life and humanity of Jesus, the Psalms provide for us a grammar with which to do that. John Calvin called the Psalms the anatomy of all parts of the soul. They show us, they teach us what are all of the edges and full rounded, full orbed parts of what it is to be human. Jesus lived into all of those edges. He lived into all that it was to be human. He was the perfect human, the complete human, the human in communion with his Father. And so the Psalms are sort of handles for us to grab hold of and be pulled up into that humanity of Jesus, to go on a ride, as it were, through that landscape of the life of Jesus, of the humanity of Jesus. Now, as we do that, as we grab hold of the handles in the Psalms and are pulled into that journey, no doubt many of you have recognized this either in the past as you've tried to read the Psalms or perhaps now as we as a church look to the Psalms and you get familiar with them again and focus on them again, you recognize that as we're pulled into that journey, there is much in the landscape of the Psalms that is foreign to us much in the landscape of the Psalms that's confusing to us. That is primarily because most of us are Gentiles. That is to say, most of us are not descendants biologically from Abraham. We're not Jews, most of us. Most of us didn't grow up Jewish. By contrast... Jesus was a Jew. Jesus did grow up Jewish. Jesus grew up observing Jewish feasts and festivals, praying Jewish prayers. He grew up practicing Jewish spirituality. And so much of what we encounter in the Psalms is just that. It is distinctly Jewish in nature. And so there's something of a language barrier as we come into the Psalms. There are cultural barriers as we come into the Psalms. 
we don't have the same cultural customs, the same practices of spirituality. These Jewish practices are foreign to us and mysterious to us. And we have to work through that as we come into the Psalms. And nowhere, perhaps, is this more acute than when we enter into the so-called Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134, because these particular 15 Psalms had a purpose in Jewish worship, in Jewish life, that is almost completely foreign to us. These were the psalms that were sung during the regular pilgrimages that Jews would make to the most holy capital city of Jerusalem. Jews throughout Palestine in the ancient world and to this day would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship there. Most notably during the Feast of Passover, But two to three times per year for most Jewish families, they would do this. And as they went, as they began to pilgrim, pilgrimage, make these pilgrimages toward Jerusalem, they would meet one another along the way. And large crowds and multitudes would begin to travel together by foot, by donkey, along the roads leading into Jerusalem. And these large crowds would begin to sing. And they would sing these songs of ascent. Psalms 120 through Psalm 134. And Jesus, we know, was among these crowds. We know from the scriptures that Jesus and his family, his parents, Mary and Joseph, and his other siblings would regularly make these journeys to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And Luke actually records this specifically for us in chapter 2 of his gospel, refers to these many trips, these many journeys that Jesus and his family would make into Jerusalem. And he zooms in on one of these journeys in particular when Jesus was 12. You may remember the story in Luke 2 that as they get into Jerusalem, Jesus winds up in discussion with some of the teachers in the law at the temple in Jerusalem. And he's so engrossed in this discussion that he doesn't notice when it's time to leave, and his parents actually make it halfway home before they realize they've left adolescent Jesus behind, and they have to come back to find him. And there's a sort of beautiful irony happening there as Jesus is engaging in this temple interaction as a young 12-year-old boy because the pilgrimages to Jerusalem were all about the temple. The reason why Jews would travel up to Jerusalem, make an ascent to Jerusalem, was because Judaism is a temple-centered faith. That is to say, in Judaism, the temple is the center of communion with God. It is where closeness with God is most available to humanity. In order to have communion with God, one must ascend into that holy place of the temple. And so Jesus, who is this perfect human, this human who is 
maturing up into perfect humanity, complete humanity, of course then, upon having occasion in his Jewish tradition and practice to have a close encounter, a communion with his father, would take advantage of that. And when his parents come back and find him there discussing matters of the Torah with the teachers in the temple and question him as to why he is there, he tells them, don't you know, I have to be in my father's house. This is who I am. This is all that I am. I long for this communion with my father. And the great irony in that, of course is that Jesus grows up into becoming, into being the Christ, such that he actually becomes the place of communion for humanity. And so we see him here as a boy, as a 12-year-old boy, going to the temple, as the people of the Jewish faith did, They would go to the temple to commune with God. In Jesus, one day, he would come to them. The temple would come to them in Jesus. And so there's this sort of intersection happening there in the youth of Jesus where he is entering into the temple-centered faith of Judaism, not discarding it, not being rid of it, but actually entering into it so that he might fulfill it. That's what Jesus is up to throughout his life. His Jewish practices he does not despise because he did not come to discard them. He came to fulfill them. He came to mature them up into the fullness of what was their primary intent, the real intent of God leading the Jews into this temple-centered worship was so that they might meet him in his son, so that his son might be for them the fulfillment of that temple promise. So these psalms of ascent then, as the Jews travel up into Jerusalem, travel into this place of worship in the temple, they are the songs of communion. They are the songs of journeying into communion with God. And these were the songs that Jesus sang as he went to commune with God. Knowing this about them opens them up to us. Knowing what it is that these Psalms were meant to be for the people of God opens them up to us. It's as though we can begin to participate in that great pilgrimage toward the temple of God. That we step into that Jewish story of going up into that communion even as we now stand here amid the fulfillment of that shadow. Knowing the shadow only enriches the fulfillment of it. And so, as we work through these cultural and language barriers of the Psalms, they come alive to us. Take Psalm 133, the Psalm that we are looking at today. 
that we read a moment ago. And listen to the opening line of Psalm 133 in light of its original purpose. In light of this chorus, this multitude of people making their way into communion with God. Psalm 133 opens this way. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You can almost hear the voices of Israel singing those words as they travel together up into this holy moment, this encounter with God at the temple in Jerusalem. You can hear the multitude ascending together. It's not unlike a scene from here in Chicago (laughs) just the other day, Friday, midday, when millions of people crammed into Grant Park to sing that modern worship psalm. I think you know the one. How does it go? Psalm 108, I believe, actually. (laughs) Go with cubs, go. Go with cubs, go. It's not unlike that. The experience of the Jews ascending together, this show of public solidarity, the multitude raising their voices in a single chorus. If you have trouble picturing it, go look at the news footage. Now, of course... This was not just worship of baseball. Uh, This was not the cult of the North Side narcissists. That was mean. This This was worship of God. Okay, this was a cry coming out of the deepest parts of Jewish longing longing for friendship and communion with Yahweh, with the God who was their king, with the one who had made their nation and defined them. So this ode to unity that's here in Psalm 133, it is not merely a unity that comes out of having a common cause, like a baseball team or something of the sort. It's much deeper than that. It's more all-encompassing than that. It's a unity that covered the whole of each Jewish person. A unity that filled them and defined them. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. What a visceral image the psalmist King David provides to us here. Speaking of that fragrant, perfumed oil that was used in the ancient world to mark a holy man. David speaks here of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first priest in Israel, representative of all the priests who would follow, indeed of the entire priesthood. And the image here is of a multitude being anointed with this oil such that they are coalescing up into one holy priesthood, up into one holy priest. You can picture this 
the streams of the 12 different tribes of Israel coming from different directions around Jerusalem, all pouring into this one central pool of humanity. These different tribes becoming one there with the temple before them, defining their center. And all of it bathed and dripping with the holy anointing oil of God. The presence, the very presence of God uniting them as one people, one priestly people, one people in deep friendship and communion with their maker, with the king of Israel, with the holy one of Israel. This is the scene that they would sing this song over. This is what Psalm 133 is about. And Jesus grew up singing this psalm as a participant in that pool. Jesus grew up himself streaming into that pool of humanity, enjoying that communal communion with God. And so it's no doubt that this psalm was on the mind of Jesus, on the heart of Jesus, as he was making his way as an adult around the roads of Palestine. These were the roads that he had walked as a boy, the roads of pilgrimage, where he had sung this psalm and the other psalms of ascent. Certainly it's on his mind, the memory of that kind of unity, the memory of the promise and the hope that was laden in these pilgrimages, this fragrant anointing oil that all the people of Israel could be one, could be priestly, could have perfect communion with God together, and they're in perfect communion with one another, that there could be no more division or hostility driving them apart. And in Luke's gospel, actually in the very next chapter after recounting this childhood experience of Jesus traveling to Jerusalem, making this pilgrimage, the very next chapter, Luke speaks to Jesus having grown up and then being baptized by John the baptizer, another pool of anointing. And then in the following chapter, chapter 4, Luke tells us that Jesus traveled back to his hometown along these same dusty Palestinian roads, his hometown of Nazareth, And when he arrived there, he went to synagogue on the Sabbath, as was his custom. But on this occasion, in the wake of his baptism, having now been anointed by God, having now crossed over, as it were, to become the fulfillment of the temple, to begin his journey of fulfilling the mission of the temple, In the synagogue, Jesus stands and reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And Luke records this for us in chapter 4 of his gospel. Picture this. Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, in a sleepy synagogue there, during a Sabbath service, maybe not unlike this gathering here, something familiar, something that's been done a hundred times a hundred times before. Jesus reads this out of Isaiah. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus had finished reading, he went and sat down, and all the worshipers in the synagogue could not take their eyes off of him, such that he felt compelled to say to them, Today this is fulfilled, right here, right now, in your very hearing. All of this longing, all of this hope and promise for communion with God, all of this hope and promise for the anointing oil of God that would bring about healing to the divisions and the fractures and the brokenness of this people, of this Jewish people, now here is fulfilled in me. I am the anointed one of God, and I will go about healing the blind and setting the captives free and releasing the oppressed and comforting the poor. I will bring this wholeness into your communal life together. I am the promise and the hope. That scene that you've had in your mind, that experience that you have in your memory of all the people of God streaming into that one anointed pool, that no longer will be only for a few times a year in Jerusalem. That promise is now at hand everywhere for all people. I am bringing the glory and the song of the Psalms of Ascent, of the pilgrimage into Jerusalem, everywhere. I am carrying it to you. No more pilgrimage required. This is a stunning announcement from the Lord Jesus, one that many in that congregation and congregations to follow would choke on. But Jesus was good to his word. Throughout his ministry, he went about doing this very thing, bringing the anointing, healing oil of God to people wherever he went, healing the sick, comforting the poor, setting free the oppressed and the captive, bringing God to people. He was good to his word for the rest of his life and ministry. He was good to his word through even his death and into his resurrection. He was good to his word in his ascension. And this glorious outpouring of the healing oil of God, of the anointing, fragrant oil of God, upon the ascension of Jesus was poured out on all flesh at Pentecost such that this promise of fulfillment, that the glory of the Jews gathering in Zion would now cover the earth and be for all people, came to fruition in that moment. It could not be contained 
just within the borders of Israel. It could not be contained simply among the Israelite people. The oil of God began to spill out over the heads and down the beard and robes of every tribe and every nation and every tongue. The unifying presence of God that overcomes all the divisions and strife that we manufacture. And the apostles began to proclaim this to all people. Apostle Peter, perhaps chief among them in those early days, recounted in the book of Acts, proclaiming this good news of Jesus, that the anointing, fragrant, healing oil of God is at hand, that all the things that divide us, all the things that ruin us, all the things that threaten our community have been washed, have been drenched now in this sweet presence on one occasion, Peter stood up in Caesarea in an area where there were few to no people who had ever made this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Gentiles, like most of us. People unfamiliar with these songs of ascent, unfamiliar with the promise and hope of Jerusalem. And Peter began to proclaim this to them began to proclaim this good news of Jesus, that it was now for all people, for all flesh. And Luke, again, in Acts 10, records this, the words of Peter, preaching the good news. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Just a few years, verses later, Luke records, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Do you see what's happening here in Caesarea all those centuries ago? The promise and the hope of Psalm 133 that had found voice and flesh to manifest in the nation of Israel and then found voice and flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus, is now also finding voice and flesh in people of every tribe, of every tongue, across every dividing line. And you see immediately what begins to happen here. As the presence of God falls, as the oil of God, the anointing oil and fragrant presence of God falls on people, all of the barriers that divide them begin to crumble. This language barrier first, the language barrier that had stood against the unity of all peoples since the days of Babel, that had been a curse against people on account of their sin, on account of their rebellion and defiance against God, their decision to go away from God and find unity and wholeness apart from him. That curse that has divided us, that language barrier that has divided people, here you see it crumble in an instant as the oil of God descends. People begin to speak and hear in one another's 
languages. The curse of Babel is being undone. All the barriers of race and ethnicity and culture, the things that terrify us about one another, here are being washed from all these people as they come into the presence of God together. They begin to hear one another for the first time. And this pool of humanity begins to form. Just as it did in Jerusalem. These streams coming from every direction, these different tribes, they begin to pool around the center, around the temple, who is Christ. And they are no longer in Jerusalem. They are no longer in Zion. Jesus has come to them. He has brought the temple into their midst in Caesarea. And they are leading into oneness there. As I'm sure you know, if you pay attention at all to anything going on past the end of your own nose, we live in a very divisive and fractured world where people who are different from one another hate one another. That may well be the defining characteristic of our present cultures. The one thing that every culture seems to share is this inability to love one another, this hostility and this division, and we are great contributors to it. Those of us even who sit here in this room, we set ourselves against one another. We pretend that all kinds of things can divide us. Whether large, national, international realities like race and gender, class, or the very small, local things like different political opinion, different personality. We reject what's different from us and we flock together according to sameness and tribe. We gather according to tribe to reassure ourselves that our little sect is somehow right and good or ultimate. Try to define our whole world according to that small little sect. And we do this in varied ways. Some of us reduce our whole world down to our biological family or even ourself simply to avoid having to engage with what is different or scary or unknown, that which has barriers, that which is hard. We're always scrambling to do this, to find people like ourselves, to vindicate ourselves and reassure ourselves that we're in the right that we've got it right. But there's a song. There's a song of ascent. And it's been offered to the world. And there are people ever joining its chorus. Its chorus grows louder. Its number is ever increasing. Increasing. 
And over the centuries, people from every tribe and tongue have come in to know this hope, this promise, this streaming together in the presence of God, this harmony that the anointing oil of God provides us. Because ultimately, what will heal our fractured world is not crushing our enemies or talking people out of their convictions or dancing on the political grave of a candidate or party that we have defeated. Ultimately, what will heal our fractured world is oil. It's oil. Oil is our only hope. The oil of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit poured out on all flesh is the only hope for your marriage. It's the only hope for our friendships. It's the only hope for our church. It's the only hope for our neighborhoods, for our city, for our nation, for our world. The holy presence of God filling us with his spirit, with the spirit of Christ God pouring out himself on us. So then, church, let's receive that spirit. Let's open our hands and no longer hold on to the vanities and the hostilities and the rivalries that would divide us, even among our own number, that would set us apart from others in our neighborhood, others in our city, that would cause us to fall along the typical, cliched fault lines of human hostility. We've been set free from all that. There is a new spirit for us to live in. God has anointed the world with the oil of his presence. He has set us free There is fragrant life at hand for all people and for you. David writes, This oil is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, Life forevermore. Mount Hermon is a hundred miles from Jerusalem. The dew of Mount Hermon has no earthly business falling onto the cracked, fractured soil of the mountains in Jerusalem, and yet God commands it. He brings dew from a far country so that the cracked, fractured, scorched earth of our hearts would teem once again with his life, with his generosity, with his charity, with his love. This is for you and for your children and for your children's children. We are united. We are anointed in the oil of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't leave us in our tribalism and that the rank hostility that we build against one another and the barriers we build against one another are not ours to overcome. We thank you for the promise of your 
rescue and salvation for the glory and wonder of your spirit that we don't have to figure it out we don't have to solve how it is that we get back into oneness with one another that we can have those conversations in the confidence of a rescue already given a freedom already in hand Father, would you anoint our church with the oil of unity that we would smell of that fragrant perfume that we would be a place that welcomes the other, the stranger, the alien that we would be a people that go into other places as strangers and aliens that we would live in the freedom of being in your presence with one another. Help us in these things. Amen.